ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد so in the last lesson we mentioned the minor signs of the day of judgment and today then we move on to mentioning some of the major signs of the day of judgment and regarding the major signs we had mentioned that there is a narration or several narrations that mention these signs from amongst those is the hadith of Hudayfa ibn Asid al-Ghifari radiyallahu anhu qal اطلع النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم علينا ونحن نتذاكر فقال ما تذاكرون قالوا نذكر الساعة قال إنها لن تقوم حتى ترون قبلها عشر آيات فذكر الدخان والدجال والدابة وطلوع الشمس من مغربها ونزول عيسى بن مريم ويأجوج ومأجوج وثلاثة خصوف خصف بالمشرق وخصف بالمغرب وخصف بجزيرة العرب وآخر ذلك نار تخرج من اليمن تطرد الناس إلى محشرهم In this hadith of Hudayfah ibn Asid al-Ghifari رضي الله عنه he mentions that the Prophet ﷺ came upon us whilst we were revising, discussing. So he said, what are you revising? What are you in discussion about? They said, we are mentioning the hour. We're discussing the hour, the day of judgment. So he said to them, It will not be established until you see ten signs before it. It will not occur, it will not be established until you see Ten signs before it. And then he mentioned the smoke, the fog, 
the Dajjal, the beast, the rising of the sun from the west, the descent of Isa السلام, Ya'juj and Ma'juj, Gog and Magog, and three eclipses, one in the east, one in the west, and one in the Arabian Peninsula. And the last of those signs will be a fire that gathers the people to the land of resurrection. This hadith mentions ten signs within it. And the scholars have mentioned that these ten are the ones that are considered as the major signs of the hour. These ten that are mentioned in this hadith are considered as the major signs of the hour. Do we know what order these signs will appear in? Why do you say the smoke will be first? Because in the hadith it's the first one mentioned? No, it's mentioned in another hadith as well. In the hadith that we just quoted, hadith of Hudhaifa ibn Asid al-Ghifari, radiyallahu anhu, the first sign mentioned is the smoke. A person may therefore say, that this hadith mentions that smoke as the first thing in this narration. Therefore, it must be the first of the major signs. The only issue is there are several other versions of this hadith. And in those versions, it's not strictly always the smoke that is mentioned as the first one. So it's not really a proof that the smoke is the first one. The scholars have quoted several narrations indicating what the first may be, what the first of the major signs may be. So take note of these narrations and then we'll come to a conclusion at the end. Narration number one from Al-Bukhari, Sahih Al-Bukhari, that the Prophet said, أَمَّا أَوَّلُ أَشْرَاطِ السَّاعَةِ فنار تحشر الناس من المشرق إلى المغرب that as for as for the first of the signs then a fire 
that will gather the people from the east to the west. This hadith in Al-Bukhari seems to indicate that the fire that gathers the people to the land of resurrection is the first of the signs of the day of judgment. Whereas in the narration that we just read before, the hadith of Hudayfa, in that one it mentioned that the last of the signs is the fire that will gather the people to the land of resurrection. Make note of that. There is another hadith also in Sahih Muslim. Hadith of Abdullah ibn Amr. Radiallahu anhuma. And by the way, the previous one where it said the fire is the first sign was the hadith of Anas. So now in Sahih Muslim, the hadith of Abdullah ibn Amr, radiyallahu anhuma qal, Hafidhtu min Rasulillah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam hadithan Lam ansahu ba'd. He says, I memorized from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam a hadith that I never forgot afterwards. Sami'tu Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam yaqul I heard the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam say, Inna awwal al-ayat khurujan tulu' al-shamsi min maghribiha wa khuruj al-dabati ala al-nasi dhuha wa ayyuhuma ma kanat قبل صاحبتها فالأخرى على إثرها قريبا In this hadith in Muslim the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam mentioned that indeed the first of the signs that will appear is the rising of the sun from the west and the exiting of the beast. Whichever one occurs in the morning, the exiting of the beast in the morning, whichever one of them occurs first, the other one will be straight after. According to this narration then, the first of the signs of the Day of Judgment would be the rising of the sun from the west. And there are other narrations also, some ahadith that indicate actually that Dajjal is the first of the signs that will occur. 
So now we have narrations indicating that the first of the signs is the fire that will gather the people to the land of resurrection. We have narrations indicating that the first of the signs will actually be the smoke. The hadith we read there indicated smoke in the list of the things mentioned. We have narrations indicating rising of the sun from the west. And we have narrations also indicating that it is the Dajjal. As for the first hadith we mentioned about the smoke, that one the scholars have explained, because that hadith, there are several versions of it, and the smoke is not always the first one mentioned, so that one isn't an issue, that isn't a proof that the smoke is going to be the first one. But the others... The Prophet ﷺ is saying, the first sign will be the fire. The first sign will be the sun rising from the west. And in those other narrations, the Dajjal. So now what do we do? How do we explain this where there are narrations saying it is the fire, the first sign? Narrations saying it is the sun rising from the west as the first sign? And narration saying that it is the Dajjal as the first sign. What are we going to do now? So maybe, maybe there's a context to it. Yeah. Maybe there is a context. Well, what is the context? How do you know that though? What are we going to do now? We're stuck. What do they have to say? We're going to get to that in a moment though. First, what has everybody else got to say? Maybe they all happen simultaneously. Maybe they all occur simultaneously. No, so it it has a sequence, isn't it? So there is a sequence of events and that sequence of events can't be, you know, for example, the Jah will come and obviously Isa will kill him. So Isa has to be there to kill him. So you know what I mean? It's a sequence. Mm-hmm. The explanation the scholars have given, they say in the hadith of Anas, it mentioned that the first sign is the fire. In the hadith of Anas, it mentioned that the first sign is the fire. And in the hadith of Abdullah ibn Amr, it mentioned the first sign is the rising of the sun from the west. And in other narrations, it mentions the Dajjal. So how do we explain this? جَمَعَ الْعُلَمَاء بَيْنَ هَذِهِ الْأَحَدِيثِ جَمْعًا بَدِيعًا فَقَالُوا إن النار هي أول علامات حصول الساعة ونهاية الدنيا فليس بعدها من الدنيا شيء فإذا ظهرت النار انتهت الدنيا فلم يبق من الدنيا شيء وحصلت الساعة 
فهذه أوليتها They say the narration that talks about the fire being the first sign It doesn't mean it's the first sign from all of them It means it's the first sign which at at the point which the crossover begins because when that fire occurs the next thing is now going to be the gathering of the people in that place and next it's resurrection so that fire is the final point upon which this world that's it and it's now going to be afterlife So it is the first sign leading into the afterlife. That after that, the gathering of the people to the land of resurrection, there's nothing else. So the scholars, they say that's the meaning of the narration, that the fire is the first sign. Meaning that's the first thing now, indicating that everything has finished and now into the afterlife. Not that it's the first sign from all of the signs. It's actually, as that other narration mentioned, the last sign from all of the signs. But in of itself, it's considered the first because when that happens, it is the first thing that happens now, indicating the end of this world completely and onto the afterlife. That's the meaning of the fire being the first sign. The first sign of the transfer into the afterlife and the end of this world completely. Whereas the other signs are all signs leading up to that. All the other signs are signs leading up to the day of judgment and the afterlife and the resurrection. The fire though, that's it. Once that's happened, end of this world. So that's the first sign indicating the absolute end. Whereas the others are leading up to the end. That's the meaning of the fire being the first sign. As for the Dajjal, the narrations talking about the Dajjal being the first sign and the narration other one saying that it was actually the sun rising from the west. That is because scholars have classified these ten major signs into classifications also. Before we spoke about minor signs and major signs. And we spoke about another categorization which was past, present and future. Now there is another categorization you can think of just for the major signs. One of the methods of categorization the scholars have highlighted is major signs upon the earth, changes in the earth, and major signs that are changes from the skies and heavens. Dajjal is considered a major sign for the change of the earth. The rising of the sun is considered a major sign from the changes from the sky and above. So in terms of the ground changes, 
Dajjal is the first. In terms of the the above changes, the sky, the heavens, from that angle, the sun rising from the west is the first. So again, the sun rising from the west is the first in terms of the changes in the heavens, the skies. Not that the sun rising from the west is the first completely and overall. It is just the first in terms of the upper changes. Overall, regardless of any categorizations, the majority of the scholars, they say, it comes down to, therefore, the last section of narrations, highlighting that actually the first overall sign is the Dajjal. Of course, we know before the Dajjal, even before the Dajjal, there will be the Mahdi. The Mahdi, of course, one of the signs of the Day of Judgment, the arrival of the Mahdi. But the Mahdi isn't mentioned in this hadith of 10. That's why the scholars don't quote it here, even though, of course, it is a sign also. So overall, the scholars, they mention that the first of the signs from those mentioned in the hadith, overall is the Dajjal. Then the second sign is... The descent, the return of Isa alayhi salam. The first sign is the Dajjal from the ten mentioned in the hadith. Then the return of Isa alayhi salam. And the third one. Ya Ajuj and Ma'ajuj. Gog and Magog. And then. The beast you say, who said that? Any other offers?
Inicio. From the ten mentioned in the hadith. From the ten mentioned in the hadith. Blowing of the horn is not mentioned there. Dajjal, then Isa alayhi salam, then Ya'juj and Ma'juj, then... The fire, that's already done. Descent of Isa is the second sign, Ya'juj and Ma'juj is the third sign, the fourth. The beast, three eclipses. Anybody else? What's going on over there? Some Googling or what? <laughs> Even Google will not be able to give you the answer for this one. The smoke, the wind. Khilaf. Even that answer on this occasion isn't accurate. Because technically there isn't khilaf. It's unknown. It is unknown because the evidences do not indicate for definite what the order will be after that. The evidences do indicate that the Dajjal is first. They do indicate the return of Isa salam, as you mentioned the series of events. They do indicate Ya'juj and Ma'juj. But beyond that, they do indicate the last one is going to be the fire. And they did indicate one more thing as well. The rising of the sun and and the beast that they occur next to each other. So we know somewhere in the order those two are going to be next to each other in the middle as well. But that's as far as it goes. Beyond that it is only ijtihad, nothing more. Scholars do have an order upon ijtihad only. Upon ijtihad only, they came up with an order that many of the scholars do mention, but upon ijtihad only. Examining the narrations and texts and going through various hadith, putting the pieces together, maybe coming up with an idea of which sign may be when. So of course, Dajjal, Isa alayhi salam, Ya'juj, Ma'juj, and then some of the scholars through ijtihad only, not definite, not hadith, they said it's possible, it looks like maybe the evidences might indicate that the fourth thing to occur will be the three eclipses. Then after that will be the smoke. Then after that will be the rising of the sun from the west, then the beast, and then the fire that gathers the people. But that is only ijtihad from the scholars for that order. So that is uh, regarding those signs and their order. We'll pray now inshallah ta'ala. And then after the prayer we'll go into the first of them, the Dajjal. Alhamdulillah. Salatu wassalamu ala rasulillah. Wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man so carrying on then, the first of the signs is the Dajjal. 
And there are multiple narrations regarding the coming of the Dajjal. It is not just one or two hadith here or there. There are many, many narrations to the extent that it is, as it's known as mutawatir, the narrations regarding the Dajjal. That there are many multiple narrations upon the coming of the Dajjal. As for the name of the Dajjal, then it is said, Al-Masihu Dajjal. The term used is Al-Masihu Dajjal. But why do we say Al-Masih? Al-Masih al-Dajjal. Qil summiya bil-Masih li'annahu yasihu fil-ard. One of the reasons is because the word Al-Masih in the Arabic has a root word which indicates to go around. And the Dajjal, when he comes, he will go around all of the earth. So perhaps that is one of the reasons why he is known as Al-Masih Al-Dajjal. لِأَنَّهُ يَسِيحُ فِي الْأَرْضِ أَنْ يَطُوفُ فِيهَا إِلَّا مَكَّ وَالْمَدِينَةِ That he will go around all of the lands except, of course, مكة المدينة فعليه يكون المسيح بمعنى ماسح That is just from the Arabic grammar explanation but the meaning that he goes across the earth that is one of the root words for مسيح Similarly there is another explanation as to why we say المسيح الدجال قيل سمي مسيحا لأنه ممسوح العين. We know that one of his eyes, the the deformity in his eyes, that also has a root word attached to المسيح, the description of the deformity to his eye. So perhaps upon that description of the deformity of his eye, he is known as Al-Masih. That is a possibility too. Then, other scholars have actually mentioned some other statements regarding this. Some of the scholars said that actually, you don't pronounce it as Al-Masih. Because we also say Al-Masih for Isa alayhi So some scholars said you don't actually pronounce it as Al-Masih. That it is actually pronounced as, and this is one of the opinions of the scholars, Misih. Not Masih, Misih. And they said because Isa alayhi salam is known as Al-Masih, 
So here we have a difference. This is Misih. Other scholars, they said that actually it is Al-Masih with a Kha at the end. It is not Al-Masih with a Ha. It is Al-Masih with a Kha at the end. And these types of opinions are very easy to understand. Because in the olden days, in Arabic especially, in the writing, there was no such thing as dots. Forget the harakat, there were no dots. In the olden days, Al-Masih and Al-Masih, the olden day Arabs would have written that in an identical manner in writing. It is known they used to write without dots. So these types of changes and slight differences in pronunciation are very easy to understand that they could occur. So some of the scholars said actually there's a dot there it should have been. It's just a, a misunderstanding or whatever it may be. It is actually Al-Masih. And that in the Arabic language means one-eyed. And that is exactly the description of the Dajjal. Makes very se- much sense there. So that is an opinion also. However, Ibn Abdul Bar, one of the great scholars of the past, he said, وَالْمَسِيحُ بْنُ مَرْيَمُ عَلَيْهِ السَّلَامُ وَالْمَسِيحُ الدَّجَّالُ لَفْظُهُمَا وَاحِدٌ عِنْدَ أَهْلِ الْعِلْمِ وَأَهْلِ اللُّهَةِ He said, that Al-Masih Dajjal and Al-Masih, i.e. Isa alayhi salam, both of them are known as Al-Masih. So he's saying those statements of the scholars that it's actually a different pronunciation, it's not correct. It is just Al-Masih for both. That is what Ibn Abd al-Bar said. And he says the scholars on the whole and the people of language, the grammarians, Arabic language, on the whole, all of them they say it's the same word. It is just al-Masih for both. وَقَدْ كَانَ بَعْضُ رُوَاتِ الْحَدِيثِ But as we've just seen now, some of the narrators of these narrations that mention the Dajjal, they would say Al-Misih with a Kasra. So that's a third pronunciation. We've had so far Al-Misih, we've had Al-Masih, and now Al-Misih. Some of the narrators used to pronounce it with a Kasra. Again, to distinguish between the Dajjal and Isa alayhi salam. وَمِنْهُمْ مَنْ قَالَ ذَلِكَ بِالْخَاءِ Ibn Abd al-Bar says, and some of them used to say it with a Kha, pronounce it as Al-Masih al-Dajjal. وَذَلِكَ كُلُّهُ عِنْدَ أَهْلِ الْعِلْمِ خَطَأ 
He says all of those pronunciations as far as the scholars, the people of knowledge are concerned are mistakes. It's a mistake to give those other pronunciations. It is just Al-Masih for both. Al-Masih Al-Dajjal and Al-Masih Isa alayhi salam. وَقَالَ الْعُلَمَاء And the scholars have also highlighted and added on and said that there are two types of Masih. One is Masihu Mihna and the other is Masihu Minha. One is the Masih of trials Trial and tribulation. And the other is the Masih of blessing, basically. One is the Masih of trials and tribulations, and that is, of course, the Dajjal. And the other is the Masih that has been bestowed upon us, that blessing upon us, and that is Isa alayhi salam. What about then the term Dajjal? That was something briefly about the term Al-Masih. What about the term Al-Dajjal? فَالدَّجَّال هُوَ الْكَذَّاب The meaning of the word Dajjal is Kathab. Somebody who is not just a liar, but an excessive liar. Somebody who is an excessive liar. Because we know that Dajjal will lie to the extent that he will claim he is Allah. He will claim to be the Lord. فَهُوَ أَفْجَرُ الْكَذَّابِينَ He is the most corrupt and worst of the liars. وَكَبِيرُ الدَّجَاجِلَةِ and the head of all of those extreme liars and those who cause corruption. Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah ta'ala said, فَسُمِّيَ بِالدَّجَّالِ لِأَنَّهُ كَذَّابِ He has been called Dajjal because he is a kathab an excessive liar, and that is what the word Dajjal means in Arabic. وَقَالَ بَعْضُ أَهْلِ الْعِلْمِ سُمِّيَ بِالدَّجَّالِ لِأَنَّهُ يُغَطِّ الْأَرْضَ إِلَّا مَكَّ وَالْمَدِينَةِ وَقَالَ بَعْضُهُمْ لِأَنَّهُ يُغَطِّ الْحَقِّ some of them said that he is known as the Dajjal because he covers the earth and he covers the truth with falsehood, with the lies, covers the earth with his lies, covers the truth with that falsehood and his lies, 
So these are all explanations they've given for the word Dajjal. And basically as most of them explain, it is from the meaning in Arabic of lying excessively. So Dajjal is not just a liar, but an excessive liar. What about the descriptions of Dajjal? فَقَدْ وَصَفَ لَنَا نَبِيُّنَا صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ الرَّحِيمُ بِنَا الدَّجَّالِ The Prophet ﷺ described the Dajjal to us لَا لِأَجْلِ أَن نَتَسَلَّى بِوَصْفِهِ وَإِنَّمَا لِنَحْضُرَهُ وَلِنَعْرِفَهُ إِذَا خَرَجَ عِيَاذًا بِاللَّهِ مِنْ فِتْنَتِهِ And the reason behind that, so that we will be aware of his description if he comes out or when he comes out. That we will be aware of who he is when he arises. That is why the Prophet ﷺ informed us of his characteristic, his description. So for example... It is mentioned in Al-Bukhari and Muslim. قال ابن عمر رضي الله عنهما قام رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم في الناس فأثنى على الله بما هو أهله ثم ذكر الدجال فقال إني لأنذركموه وَمَا مِن نَبِيٍّ إِلَّا أَنذَرَهُ قَوْمَهُ لَقَدْ أَنذَرَ نُوحٌ قَوْمَهُ وَلَكِنِّي أَقُولُ لَكُمْ فِيهِ قَوْلًا لَمْ يَقُلْهُ نَبِيٌّ لِقَوْمِهِ تَعْلَمُونَ أَنَّهُ أَعْوَرُ وَأَنَّ اللَّهَ لَيْسَ بِأَعْوَرُ In this hadith, the Prophet says that indeed I warn you and there is not a prophet from before except that he warned his people indeed Nuh warned his people about this Dajjal but I will say to you something that they the previous prophets did not tell their people some extra information about this Dajjal. And that is, that you are aware, he is A'war. That he is, in terms of his eyes, he is one-eyed. And indeed, Allah is not one-eyed. This the scholars have mentioned as an evidence regarding the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has the attribute of eyes, but not like anything we can imagine, not like anything comparable to creation, not like anything that resembles anything in creation, but an affirmation that Allah has that attribute, and that Allah is not one-eyed, as the Dajjal is one-eyed. In the hadith of Abu Hurairah, 
radiyallahu anhu the same the prophet sallallahu said shall i not tell you something about the dajjal ma haddatha bihi nabiyun qaumah no other prophet told his people this point and that is innahu a'war that he is one-eyed. In Al-Bukhari and Muslim from the hadith of Abdullah ibn Umar, radiyallahu anhuma qal, ذَكَرَ النَّبِيُّ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ يَوْمًا بَيْنَ ظَهْرِ النَّاسِ الْمَسِيحَ الدَّجَّالِ فَقَال That on one occasion, one day, the Prophet وسلم, mentioned amongst the people, Al-Masih al-Dajjal. And then he said, Inna Allah laysa bi-a'war. That indeed Allah is not one-eyed. Ala inna al-Masih al-Dajjal a'war al-Ayn al-Yumna. That indeed the Dajjal is one-eyed from his right eye. Ka'anna aynahu inabatun tafiyah. As though his eye is like a protruding grape, a floating grape that it's sticking out, bulging like a grape. That is the description given. Muslim anhu marfu'an anna Nabi And there are some other narrations, several narrations, all telling us about this description of the Dajjal regarding his eye that he has a deformity in his eye. Some narrations mention it is in his right eye. Some narrations mention it is in his left eye. What appears to be the case is that that extreme deformity is in the right eye, but that there is also a deficiency of some sort in the left eye. That is what the narrations would seem to indicate. Then on top of that. So, so how does that mean that it's one eye? That one of his eyes is completely deformed. But the other eye, there is some deficiency in it, but not, uh, not uh, uh, completely gone like the other side. One side is completely deformed but the other side still has elements of its eye, how it's supposed to be. Then in Sahih Muslim, أَنَّ بَعْضَ أَصْحَابِ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صلى الله عليه وسلم قال إِنَّ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صلى الله عليه وسلم قال يَوْمَ حَضَّرَ النَّاسَ الدَّجَّالِ That the Prophet وسلم, said to the people one day when he was warning them against the Dajjal, إِنَّهُ مَكْتُوبٌ بَيْنَ عَيْنَيْهِ كَافِرٌ يَقْرَأُهُ مَنْ كَرِهَ عَمَلَهُ أَوْ يَقْرَأُهُ كُلُّ مُؤْمِنٌ The Prophet said that it will be written between his eyes, Kafir. Everybody who hates what he does, i.e. the believers, they will read that. Every believer will read that, or everybody that hates his actions will read that. In the hadith of Anas also, الدجال مكتوب بين عينيه كافارا 
But it is written between his eyes, the letters Kaf, Fa, and Ra. Kafara, Kafir. Indicating that he has disbelieved. And this is something that every believer will be able to read. Even if they are illiterate, they will see that writing between the eyes of a Dajjal. In another narration it tells us how long the Dajjal remains amongst the people. قال النواس رضي الله عنه قلنا The companion النواس says that we said to the Prophet ﷺ يا رسول الله وما لبثه في الأرض O Messenger of Allah How long will he stay upon the earth? يعني كم بقاؤه في الأرض? قال وسلم أربعون يوما Forty days that the Dajjal will remain upon the earth for forty days. Yawmun kasana. One day will be like a year. Wa yawmun kashar. And one day will be like a month. Wa yawmun kajum'ah. And one day will be like a week. وَسَائِرُ أَيَّامِهِ كَأَيَّامِكُمْ And the rest of the days will be like your days, the normal days. So then, the companions when they heard that, they said, يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ فَذَٰلِكَ الْيَوْمُ الَّذِي كَسَنَهُ O Messenger of Allah, that day, the first day, which is going to be actually like a year, أَتَكْفِينَا فِيهِ صَلَاةُ يَوْمُ Will it suffice us to pray the normal prayers of a day? Meaning in that time period which is like actually a year, are we only going to pray five prayers? Five prayers in a year. Just five prayers for the whole year. Is that going to suffice us? So the Prophet wasallam told them to do what? Uqduru lahu qadrah. The Prophet said, estimate the times. A day is going to extend out to a year. So they said, are we only going to pray five prayers in that extended day? The Prophet said, rather estimate the normal cycle of a day and pray your five prayers. Estimate the normal cycle of a 24-hour day and carry on praying like that. So that in that day, which is actually like a year in reality, you are still going to be praying five daily prayers upon an estimation of the cycle of 24 hours every day. Here the scholars, they mention a few points. One is they say, 
that the Dajjal will therefore be upon this earth for how long? What does the maths work out to be then? One day is like a year, one day is like a month, one day is like a week. And the rest of the days are normal and it's a total of 40 days. So how much is that altogether? People always do this when we get to this section and we say how many days is it going to be or how long is it going to be. And so people say 440 days and 439 days. So if I say to you I'll see you in 440 days, what are you going to do? First thing you're going to do is work out the maths, how long is 440 days. So you need a better answer than that. So, one year, two months, and two weeks approximately. That's an answer that makes sense straight away. One year, two months, two weeks approximately. One year, two months, two weeks. That is how long the Dajjal will be upon this earth. The second point the scholars make in this narration, they say, here you have the Prophet ﷺ telling the companions regarding the Dajjal, the most severe trial of the Dajjal. And in some other narrations, it's mentioned how the Prophet ﷺ was telling them about the Dajjal to such an extent how he was telling them. The companion said, it was like we thought that the Dajjal is right there behind the palm tree. To that level, the Prophet ﷺ, the way he was telling us and the detail he was giving us, we feared that is the Dajjal right here, right now. To that level of severity, we were being informed. And yet, the question that comes up on the mind of the companions, showing you the level of importance they gave to it, they say, O Messenger of Allah, on that day then, how do we pray? If it's gonna be like a year long, then how are, we going, how are we going to pray? The prayer, even though the subject matter, what's being discussed here, the day of judgment, the Dajjal, the trial, they say, O oh, Messenger of Allah, what are we going to do about the prayer on that day then? Shows you the importance of the prayer in the religion. The third point, the fuqaha have mentioned from this as well, Digression, but they mention it from the explanation of this hadith, a point regarding the prayer. They say, if you live in a situation like that situation, and there are examples which are comparable, like in some of the Scandinavian areas, or further north, where the sun doesn't go down for six months, it doesn't go down. If you're there, it is light. It doesn't go down for six months. Yes, it gets a bit dark, a bit lighter, but it doesn't become night for six months. So if you're happening to be living there, you happen to be living out there in that area where the sun doesn't go down for six months, how are you going to pray? Are you going to pray... Your Fajr at the beginning of the six months, 
And then Dhuhr and Asr, but you can't pray Maghrib for six months yet. What are you going to do? Every 24 hours you pray. Five prayers. So you're going to estimate on a 24-hour cycle, just as the Prophet ﷺ told them to estimate on a 24-hour cycle. Basically. But the scholars say you can do a little bit more accurate as well than just an open estimate. They say the nearest country where they have a 24-hour cycle, meaning there is a daytime and a nighttime, the closest country where they do have a 24-hour day-night cycle, then based upon their cycle, you pray where you are too. So it's going to be an early Fajr and a very late Isha. Because the nearest country is going to have a, a night of an hour or a, a couple of hours long. So wherever that nearest country is that has a 24-hour cycle, you work off their cycle. It's not a Muslim country, any country. Not necessarily a Muslim country. The nearest place where a 24-hour cycle exists, then you base your timings upon that and you can pray your prayers within that time. And this is the same fatwa the scholars give for Ramadan. Imagine you were there now and Ramadan comes. How are you going to fast if the sun never goes down? The nearest country where they have a 24-hour cycle for day and night, you implement that and you fast. It's like in the Scandinavian countries. They ask, the permanent committee of scholars. They said where we live in the northern Scandinavian areas, night time is only one hour long. In the summer, night time is only one hour long. Even we have about four or five hours. In the middle of summer, Maghrib maybe 10 o'clock latest, Fajr maybe 2 3 o'clock. Even we have four hours at least. But in Scandinavian northern areas, it goes right down to just barely an hour. Maghrib at 11.30 or something p.m. Fajr starts at like 12.30, 1 o'clock a.m. So they have barely an hour or so. And that is how it is. So they asked the permanent committee, what are we going to do for Ramadan? How are we going to fast? 23 hour day only one hour from Maghrib to Fajr you're going to open your fast in that time you're going to pray Isha you're going to pray whatever Taraweeh is possible and then you're going to pray your Fajr your Suhoor and Fajr so how are we going to do that so the permanent committee of scholars said to them what follow the nearest country that has what They have a 24-hour cycle. Yeah, they have, they have a sunset and sunrise. 23 hours sunrise and one hour sunset. So the scholars, they said, as long as you have a 24-hour day-night cycle, then the rulings of Islam apply. Fasting is from sun uh, when the light appears. The Fajr time entering up until sunset, do they have both of those times? They have them. 
There's only an hour in between those two times, but they have those two times. So they said you have to fast. The signs are there for your fasting, you have to fast. If anybody is not capable of doing that, 23 hours, if you physically are not able to do that, then no problem, all of the rulings of the religion are there. Somebody who is physically incapable of doing so, Islamically has the excuse of being able to miss that. And then, no, not feed. Afterwards, make it up. If a person could not fast 23 hours, he physically can't do it, then okay. Islamically, he has the excuse to miss. And then afterwards, he's got to make it up. Because him not being able to fast there is only a temporary thing. Later on when winter comes, then the night will become longer in those areas. And the day will become shorter. He can fast then. So he makes them up afterwards, the one who can't. The ones who can, they have a 24 hour cycle and they fast. And this is what the scholars they mention regarding the prayer and regarding the fasting. أَنَّ الْمُسْلِمِينَ فِي الْبُلْدَانِ الَّتِي لَا تَطْلَعُ عَلَيْهِمُ الشَّمْسِ فِي بَعْضِ أَيَّامِ السَّنَةِ كَبَعْضِ بُلْدَانِ أُرُبَّا يَقْدِرُونَ قَدْرَ الْيَوْمِ يعني لو فرضنا أنه قد جاء رمضان ولا نهار أي أنهم لا يرون الشمس فإنهم يقدرون اليوم كيف يقدرونه؟ قال الفقهاء ينظرون إلى أقرب بلد لهم يوجد فيه نهار فيحسب الوقت هكذا That if you don't have any sunset then the nearest country you work it out from them and you do your prayers and you do your fasting. If you have a 24-hour cycle, then you got your cycle and you do it. Whoever is not able, then they make up afterwards. So this is the ruling regarding the prayer and the fasting in those circumstances. And that is one of the evidences mentioned by the scholars uh, indicating that the prayer is to be prayed in its times and that combining is not allowed. That's the one of the evidences, main evidences that the scholars use that mention the impermissibility of combining. Of course, we know there are opinions based upon other uh, narrations or other ishtihad that allow the combining in the summer that occurs in the, in the UK and other places, there are fatawa allowing that based upon other inferences from the evidences. But the scholars who do not allow it, then this is one of the evidences, the hadith of the Dajjal, that the Prophet ﷺ told them, estimate the times and pray. Not any other ruling of combination or delaying or earlier, estimate the times in their times and pray. And so, if a person has that 24-hour cycle, they have to pray their prayers in that 24-hour cycle. And they have to do their fasting in that 24-hour cycle. There's no such thing as combining for difficulty there. You cannot say that because the the days are so short, we have to combine Isha with Maghrib. Well, in the same way you could say the day is so long, we have to combine, or not combine, but we have to do our opening of the fasting at Asr instead. Because it's so long. So they say you cannot make these adjustments. If you have a 24-hour day, then the rulings are there. And if you have the fiqh argument, 
that the time for Isha never enters in this country. Which is an argument. Because the time for Isha enters when that redness, the twilight, disappears from the sky. In the summer here, it never disappears, or rarely disappears. In many areas, it doesn't disappear. When you look out in the summer nights, there's always that little bit of light in the horizon. It doesn't get pitch black. That light that remains is supposed to disappear. Pitch black, that's when Isha time starts. So technically in the summer, in many areas... Isha never enters. But then they say, خلاص, Hadith of the Dajjal. If Isha never enters, then look to your nearest country where it does enter, and based upon that, you pray your Isha on that timing. So that is the evidence they use and they mention. But that is what you have there in terms of how long the Dajjal will remain upon this earth. There are other Hadith about some of the things that the Dajjal will do. But we'll do those the next time now then inshallah ta'ala. We'll finish off those other narrations about what the Dajjal will do when he's here. And we'll also mention the hadith of Tamim regarding when they were shipwrecked or they were uh, blown off course and they landed upon a, a strange island. And upon the island they came upon a chained man up in the monastery or up in that type of place, they came upon the chained man who said he was the Dajjal and that he will be released soon. And this is a narration the scholars do mention. So we'll come across that narration next time, inshallah ta'ala, and some of the examples of what the Dajjal will be allowed to do as well in the next session, which will be the Friday before Ramadan, it would appear. So in two weeks time, inshallah ta'ala, we'll do that then. And we'll round off on that for today. Any questions up to there or anything else? If that is the case that the light never disappears, then according to this fatwa of the scholars, the nearest country where they do have the light disappearing and they do have an Isha time coming in, then we use their estimate or we use that estimate here. So let's say somewhere in Europe or somewhere, wherever that might be, they have Isha coming in and it's coming in at approximately 90 minutes after Maghrib where they are. That's where it comes in there. So we can use that estimate as 90 minutes and pray. That's what this means here. Closest country where Isha is coming in. When is it coming in there? It's coming in at 90 minutes. That's the closest place where the Isha comes in, the twilight disappears. So we can estimate that. That's the closest actual Isha time we have. We can estimate that 90 minutes, for example, and pray it. Possibly, yeah. If the twilight doesn't disappear, then it's going to be intermingled with the light of Fajr appearing. So to an extent, the same type of method can be used. Look at the time of the nearest country where it does enter, and then we apply our enter time, entry time upon that too. Allah Alam. But it's not, I mean, I've heard from brothers in this country who have gone out to analyze this. 
And they say there are certain places, certain times they've been, and it's not the case that the twilight never disappears in the summer. There are brothers in certain places, they've gone out and they've properly researched and analyzed, and they've worked out the times of their prayers and their timetables based upon actually going out and checking properly. So I don't know if it's uh, established that the twilight never disappears ever in the summer in the UK. Allah alam. But if it doesn't, then I don't know what the nearest country is, but that can be established easily enough, I suppose. And with regard to the sequence of the prayers, do you do like 360 fajrs and then zuhurs, or is it... No, no, you fajr, zuhur, as a, as a day, then your next, as a day. Huh. With regards to the jali, you hear that some people mention that the, the jali is a concept. So, for example, the television is the jali, or the Freemasons, they're the Dajjal now. Mm-hmm. Is that a correct understanding, or is our belief that the jali is a physical being? Some people say that the Dajjal, it's a concept. It's a trial and a tribulation that we've been told about as a concept. So they say the TV is the Dajjal, the severe fitna which comes from the TV on top of the fact that the TV is of course one-eyed. You don't have two screens on a TV side by side. It's a one-eyed item. So they say, this is the Dajjal. So that is of course incorrect. These ideas are incorrect. Yes, these types of things may well be trials and tribulations and the corruption which comes from them. But you can't start telling us these things are Dajjal. Dajjal is an actual individual who will appear at the end of time. Next lesson we're going to talk about his descriptions mentioned in the hadith. Curly hair and big bodied and all these things. How does that apply to the TV curly hair? TVs in Medina and Mecca as well, isn't it? <laughs> TVs are in Medina and Mecca. That's a, that's a good point. And the Dajjal cannot enter Mecca and Medina. So there are physical descriptions given about the Dajjal. Physical descriptions of what he's going to look like. So we'll mention those next time. When you see those, the physical descriptions, you know all these things. People say it's the Dajjal, it's, this, uh, it's the TV it's this, it's that, that's not correct. It's an actual physical uh, 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 individual who will come and he will be killed by Isa alayhi salam. How are you going to apply the concept of the TV in there? So this is just misguidance and people using their intellect and philosophy and all types of their own thoughts. All these modern day thinkers. Go on. That's a big thing. It can't be explained in a few minutes. But in terms of aqidah, there's lots of things in aqidah you have to learn slowly, step by step. And I think maybe some of the other classes, what's going on right now? What happens on the other Friday? Saturday. On Friday, Abu Yad, what's he doing right now? Okay, and uh, the Saturday classes? Kitab al-Iman. So, aqidah, in order to learn it properly and to establish what the correct aqidah is, it takes studying for a while. You have to go through the different aspects of aqidah. So, for example, our belief in Allah. 
In fact, we did it here before a few months ago, before we got to this stage. But belief in Allah, then you have to learn about the names and attributes of Allah, what it means, how do we understand them. We believe in all of the names and attributes of Allah. We don't make up these philosophical ideas that it means this and it means that. We don't say that Allah told us things in the Qur'an to confuse us. Allah told us in the Qur'an clearly about His names and attributes. Whatever Allah told us in the Qur'an, we believe and we affirm. We don't reject what's in the Qur'an. We don't distort what's in the Qur'an. And that is the biggest problem with the people of innovation. When it comes to the Qur'an and the Sunnah, they try to make things up in their mind as to what it means. You cannot do that. When you try to make up with your mind, your intellect, it means this and it probably means that, then everybody's going to have different opinions what it means. The correct aqidah is you believe what's in the Qur'an and the Sunnah as it is. As the Prophet ﷺ explained, as the Sahaba, the Salaf explained. So you learn all about the Iman in Allah. And then the Iman in the angels, Iman in the books. You have to go through those various sections to learn the aqidah properly. But there are many classes that have been done. Ah, so we can maybe give you some afterwards, some links or some CDs or something, or even simple books. You can read through them section by section and you'll learn what the correct aqidah is. Even that book there, show him. If you get this book, the sound creed, creed meaning like aqidah, the correct aqidah, small book, you can see it's not big, written by one of the scholars. If you get that book, read through that section by section and every week when you have any questions, bring them and we can tell you about that section by section every week and you'll learn the correct aqidah in that way. But make a note of that book. You can start with that nice and simple as well. Alright, round off there then. Inshallah ta'ala carry on in two weeks time with that next section part two regarding the Dajjal. Inshallah.